I, I just want to say uh, before we get started for the purpose of the recording, uh, we don't quite have a thousand handouts to match the room of a thousand people that are here, but uh, uh, hopefully you can look on with the neighbor. No, actually I'm very encouraged to, to see this crowd here, uh, really excited about the opportunity to share some of this material with you and uh, hopefully start some conversations. Uh, uh, back home at, at your local congregations. Um, I'll introduce myself first, uh, and then Jason can uh, can introduce himself. I'm Dave Morgan. I am a uh, assistant professor uh, for marriage and family therapy at Lipscomb University, and I've been at Lipscomb since 2001. I spent the first dozen years or so there uh, doing full-time therapy in the University Counseling Center. And then about five years ago, six years ago, we started a marriage and family therapy program and I transitioned at that point and love what I get to do. Uh, I am married to Anna. We have two children, one who just took a tour of Pepperdine yesterday. She's here with me. Uh, we have a 17-year-old and then we have a 13-year-old uh, and live in Nashville. Uh, my name is Jason Allison. I minister at the Peter Church of Christ. Uh, come next month, I've been there 24 years. I uh, spent the first 10 years doing youth ministry and uh, the last 13, 14 or so uh, doing the preaching ministry. And you've been somewhere 24 years, you actually have a lot of titles <laughs> that, you, that you assume through the years. But uh, I, uh, my wife Amy is here. We have five kids. Uh, we are a blended family, more honestly, a chunky family, still working on a blend. Right. Uh, it's kind of the best way to define that. Uh, we have uh, two kids that are in college, two that are in high school, one that's in middle school, and two boys with the same name, which really makes for an interesting yeah. household. Uh, but that's another story in another class. But uh, So that's kind of what, what we bring uh, to this study and, and looking at the local church and matching with David, his work as a therapist. Speaking of, of other courses, we, we've just developed this interest in, and excitement in the last years about thinking about and, and sharing conversations about the places where mental health and, and, and church life, mental health and ministry intersect. And, uh, to, and so... Uh, we've presented on a number of topics related to this, uh, but what we're doing today uh, is really about trying to equip the local church. I, I should say uh, that we've known each other a while. <laughs> um, I'm the short one. Yeah. We, and continue to be. <laughs> we're, we're standing appropriately here. Uh, uh, actually, no, I'm looking yeah, back. Right, right yeah. um, but... Uh, what my, my favorite uh, thing to notice about this picture is how we appear to be standing in two different seasons. You know, I, uh, I've always been more of a, a, a jeans and long sleeve guy. Um, I'm matching, I just said, so that's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that, that I, I enjoy about this picture is how frugal my mom <laughs> was. ahead. Yeah, with the, uh, yeah. the same jeans you have on there? <laughs> yes, yes. They, they've, uh, they've survived the last few years. Five years ago, this was taken. So we both are real spurgle. We have, we, have, we have known each other. I, I don't remember a time uh, before I knew Jason, and uh, so he's been a blessing in my life, and I, I hope that, that, that he would say the same. So again, our goal for this class is to equip church members and leaders uh, with some, hopefully, better understanding of, or, or at least some ideas about how the church can serve 
the needs of congregants as well as needs of folks in the immediate community. We're not going to go uh, challenge or issue specific. We're, uh, there are some resources out there that sort of go by uh, dealing with anxiety, dealing with depression, you know, dealing with personality disorders. Uh, that's at more of a micro level. We're at more of a macro level today, uh, hopefully offering suggestions that work um, uh, across a number of different challenges. I mean, thinking about, you know, your role and what may have brought you to this class or caused you to have interest in this may determine in what role you serve either in the church or in the community or in your uh, profession and career. Uh, kind of what we mentioned in our introductions, of course, uh, I'm dealing primarily in the local church context. And so what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing from a ministry uh, perspective is how uh, the, the need for more awareness, uh, information, knowledge, uh, all of this uh, presents such a challenge to those in ministry when you look at uh, the need for uh, being able to address mental health uh, concerns. And so it's a situation uh, that seems to be rampant and you can feel very uh, overwhelmed at times and, and ill-equipped to be able to, uh, to deal with this. So that's why this is an important study for me and that's kind of the approach that I come with this. Yeah, and uh, from a, a perspective as as a therapist, one of the things that I think is good news is that uh, the stigma around mental health issues is lifting. And, and, and I've seen significant change. When, when I first got to Lipscomb in 2001, a big part of our effort was trying to get the word out about services, um, you know, letting students know that services existed, that they were in fact confidential, which was a tough sell mm -hmm. uh, in that setting. Uh, and and uh, I remember a debate we had a couple years in, if we could handle going from one intern to two, if we had enough work to give a second uh, graduate level intern. Today, I'm no longer in that center, but today I believe they have something in, in the range of uh, 30 graduate student interns all with full schedules in addition to the full-time staff. So, so certainly things are changing. Uh, we we want to just establish a couple things up front before we get into the suggestions. And, and first and foremost, uh, that is that regardless of your level of mental health today, we all sit here broken in, in some way. Uh, that's just the ongoing human condition, I think. And, uh, we, we have to, if we're going to engage this conversation, we've got to get beyond the idea that some of us are, uh, are healers exclusively, and then there are these broken people, and the, and the healers are going to condescend to, to help the broken. Uh, we're, we're all broken. I, I love what Anne Lamont says, everyone is broken. Try not to compare your insides to their outsides. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 uh, reminds us God is shining in our hearts to let you know that His glory is seen in Jesus Christ. We are, all, we are like jars of clay in which this treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. We often suffer, but we are never crushed. I mean, as jars of clay, we contain the light of God. And our clay is the vehicle uh, for God's power. But sometimes, as you and I have experienced in this idea, of course, of the brokenness we've all uh, experienced, 
our clayness, for lack of a better word, gets in the way of that power. And so many of us fixate on the cracks in ourselves. And others of us fixate on the cracks in others. But we realize it's through those cracks in which so many times God's light is able to shine. And so that's, again, coming back to that theme of brokenness, that, that standard we all experience. There's a Christian psychiatrist named Michael Lyles, and I just want to share a, a brief excerpt of his with you. Uh, he writes about how Job lost money, relationships, and health to the point of wishing he'd never been born before God gave him a new perspective. Naomi felt so broken after losing her husband and two sons that she tried to change her name to Bitter before finding some restoration in a new grandchild. Elijah felt broken in the letdown following his great victory over the prophets of Baal, and God encouraged him to rest and replenish himself. Brokenness got Nehemiah's attention before he took on a great work for the Lord, and David, Israel's great king, wrote of feeling broken a number of times in the Psalms. And I actually want to go to the Psalms, uh, and I think that this Psalm in particular is uh, appropriate to what we're talking about today, because Psalm 102 is essentially a checklist of symptoms that David himself was experiencing. Take a look at this. Lord, hear my prayer and listen to my plea. Don't turn away from me in my time of distress. Bend down your ear and answer me quickly when I call to you. Now, now hear these things. He feels physical effects. It says, for my days disappear like smoke and my bones burn like red hot coals. He lost his appetite. My heart is sick, withered like grass, and I have lost my appetite. Because of my groaning, which we heard about last night in the kingdom, I am reduced to skin and bones. He felt alone. He says, I am like an owl in the desert, like a lonely owl in a far-off wilderness. Sleep patterns are disturbed. I lie awake, lonely as a solitary bird on the roof. My enemies taunt me day after day. They mock me and they curse me. And there are intense periods of crying. I eat ashes instead of my food. My tears run down into my drink. So the psalmist here sounds like someone who's acutely aware of the truth of what Paul would write many years later, that, that he's made of, of, of clay, that he's imperfect, that he's broken. And, and we all can relate to that on some level, I, I imagine. But, but it, you, you have to read no further than the first few verses of Psalm 103 to see that, that, he's a, that the psalmist is also able to praise God. And, and as verse 14 says, he praises God because God knows us inside and out and keeps in mind that we're made of mud. Again, it's clay, right? It's, it's cracks and, and all. So we established that to some degree all, everyone in our churches has had some level of experience with this. Um, maybe not to the same degree, but to some degree. But we don't necessarily know how to respond to that in helpful ways. And, and, and when we started preparing this material about a year ago, we sat down and, and brainstormed some ideas between ourselves, but I also turned to a, a network of, of therapists. Uh, I, I sent a, a 
question out to about a hundred therapists that uh, are former students or supervisees or, or colleagues, and and some were believers, some are not, some very actively involved in their churches, others not. But, but asked for their ideas. What is it that congregations could be doing more of or less of in some cases? What do congregations need to change? What do they need to stop doing altogether in order to better serve uh, the mental health needs around them? And it can be a little frustrating sometimes, in my experience, coming to uh, a lectureship or a conference like Pepperdine and hear great ideas or things that are working in other places and then go back sometimes even more frustrated because what worked well there doesn't work well where you are. And that can be a, a lot of different factors uh, that, that determine that. And so as we mention these and as we go through some of these uh, suggestions, and again, as Dave said, it may be some things that you try, some things you start. It may be some things that you alter, change, or even stop. But we consider with each of these, um, maybe in trying to look at that particular suggestion, whether it's something that all churches can do, and there are some of those, uh, some suggestions that some churches can do, or most churches could do, uh, and then, of course, maybe it is, it's just some churches are able to do uh, some of these suggestions, but not, not all. And so keep that in mind, that this is not a, a one-size-fits-all type of, of approach, but just understanding here's some different ideas either suggested to us uh, or uh, in other uh, resource that we, that we found. So to organize these, we, we've just broken them down into some categories, and we're going to go through each of these categories and unpack them, and Jason's going to start with some thoughts about how we communicate as a congregation. You have these, of course, on your outline. Uh, the first thing about communication is for any speaker, for anyone who addresses uh, a body of people on a regular basis, is considering your audience, and some of that we've already done uh, with you in speaking about the brokenness that we all experienced on different levels and different ways, but acknowledging that. Uh, the challenge with any public presentation is communicating to a large audience. It requires speaking in generalities. And when it comes to topics such as mental health, uh, it can become problematic at times to simplify something that is so complex. Um, while we speak publicly in these generalities, understand that people hear in specifics. I used an example this past Sunday from Romans 14 just for my personal example in regards I mentioned uh, about the consumption of alcohol. It was just a very brief example that I gave, but I had someone meet me at the door and say, you know, basically, I agree with you and I'm glad you finally preached on alcohol. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> that isn't what I preached on at all. That was that one little bitty example, but that's what they heard and what they latched onto. And a more humbling example, <laughs> I was speaking, I'm not as comfortable speaking as Dave is uh, day in, day out to college students. And the older I get, and even though having some in, in our home, I, I feel the less I'm able to relate. So I was, each spring I'll, I'll teach or share in a session of his family problems class, and I never know if I'm there because of why I'm an expert, maybe because I have a family with so many problems. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm there sharing about how, how churches can, can help more than just a sermon, you know, and how they reach out and, and, and show compassion uh, to, to different individuals and to families. And 
and it's a pretty long uh, presentation that I give. And when I start out, I have different examples. And one of those is um, I have for my car a, a scanner, a code reader that you plug in, you know, when the lights come on, the warning lights, and you plug that in, and it'll tell you what the code is and tell you what's wrong with your car. And my whole thing is, wouldn't it be great if people were that way? We could just plug in and, you know, we see a warning signal, a light, and we just plug in, and we can quickly understand what's going on with them and, and, and treat it and address it, that type of thing. And then I go on for a on and on and on with a lot of other different things. It was very moving. Yeah, thank you. And at yeah. the end of the presentation, yeah. then there was time left for you know, any questions and answers. And so this one girl eagerly raises her hand and so filled with a bit of pride that, you know, I've obviously connected with someone <laughs> in this great message and presentation. She goes, uh, do you know where we get one of those scanners? <laughs> <laughs> That's all she heard. I'm not sure that anything after that uh, connected in any way with her. I, I told Dave, I had the impression that at the top of her paper, she thought, remember to ask about the scanner. <laughs> she probably had a warning light on her car. Yeah. But, uh, so I mean, you know, you understand that sometimes you, you speak in generalities and people hear in specifics. And so with a topic like mental health, that can be challenging. One of the things uh, that we also, another suggestion is to normalize struggle from the pulpit. Uh, when you have that platform, uh, that stage, whatever you may call it, uh, is to normalize struggle. And again, not trying to um, uh, separate an us and them, any type of mentality like that. As we've already said, everyone is uh, broken. An example from, from my ministry, my life was uh, pretty early on in, in our marriage. Um, Amy and I went to marriage counseling, especially in regards to a lot of parenting issues. When you're parenting in a blended family, I mean, there's just a lot of challenges that we could not have anticipated. And so trying to work through that, how it was affecting us and that type of thing. Well, one Sunday, and I did ask her permission prior to doing this, doing this uh, I asked, I mean, I told the church uh, that Amy and I were, you know, right now currently in counseling and, and kind of the reason behind that didn't disclose a lot more than that. What I didn't realize is what would happen after the message was the response that I received from others thanking me for being open about that. And it kind of, and especially to, especially for a lot of wives who've been talking with their husbands about wanting to go to counseling and then, oh, that's not for, for me and that type thing, to kind of normalize that and validate it. And so uh, I, I wasn't expecting that. Rick Warren says in regards especially to mental health, mental health, there's no shame when any other organ in your body fails. So why do we feel shame if our brain is broken? I thought that's pretty appropriate about normalizing. Yeah, so on this, this subject, uh, I want to share with you some of the especially insightful feedback we got from our uh, network of therapists. Uh, this is a therapist who has done a portion of her practice connected to a particular congregation. And she said that messages from the pulpit should never overtly identify a client's or family's situation. And that might seem like it goes without saying. Apparently it does not go without saying. We, we need to say it. Uh, sometimes those little identifying pieces of someone's story might make it a more compelling story. But we need to be very careful about guarding people's uh, confidentiality. Certainly a minister can pull from different examples, but if anything is to be shared from the pulpit, it must be generalized information so as to keep the client's or family's identity confidential. Uh, another response we got, and this is longer than I wanted to put on the screen. This is, bear with me. It's, it's, it's so good that I can't bring myself to edit it down. I've got the kind of the crux of it here. 
Uh, but this is a super, supervisee of mine. We meet every week to staff cases. And she said, there seems to be a subtle convoluted message floating around out there that God equals only good things in life. This can be interpreted as a detour around struggle, around grief, around wrestling well with our hardships. It lacks Paul's encouragement to rejoice in our sufferings. It lacks the reality that Jesus did not heal every sick person he came in contact with when walking this earth. He did not raise every lost loved one from the dead. He did not cure world hunger. He did not restore corrupt politics by becoming the literal king that the Jews wanted him to be. The majority of the planet suffered per usual when God in the flesh was here. That is a difficult reality to swallow if you believe that Christ's presence rids us of all struggle. And picking up here, we are left with clients who love the Lord, but the dead did not rise for them. And hopeless situations did not cease to exist. We're left helping them understand how a good God lets bad things happen and now it's time to grieve. When pastors and churches focus on only good things happening through God without discussing the bad or hard things that still happen, we get some confused and heartbroken clients in our office. When she sent that to me, my, uh, my one-word response is, maybe you should be teaching this class because <laughs> this is, I think, just such an eloquent way of framing uh, what many of us experience. Uh, one more piece of feedback I'll share here. Uh, another of our therapists uh, said, I so often find that the church would like to continue to ignore mental health and pretend that the joy of the Lord should fix everything, which ends up being shaming to members who do struggle. Uh, I have also found that when we try to hide it, members who are struggling go longer before getting help. At bare minimum, churches who start having conversations about mental health are opening the door for their members to feel less shame, which is a good place to start. That's normalizing the struggle from the pulpit in more in a more public way, but also especially as leaders, and not not just for pastors and ministers and, and elders and shepherds, but also for for your ministry leaders, for all those in which you equip and you empower to lead, uh, is normalizing struggle in conversation, in your private personal communications. And to me, this takes even much greater discipline uh, in the way in which we we uh, uh, converse with others and. Uh, I've got a note in here to myself for those of us who also have as a struggle uh, more of a curse than a blessing is sarcasm uh, because that can get you in trouble. When you're simply being sarcastic and a lot of the jokes or things that we may either tell or share or take part in, you don't realize what they may say or speak or communicate indirectly to others about mental health. I mean, and it's, it's being sensitive uh, to the world we live in, uh, again, to the audience, to the people God places uh, in our, our charge. Yeah, one, one more piece of uh, feedback. And this was from a non-believer, uh, but she went through our program at Lipscomb and, and, and has respect for believing people, but this one hurt a little bit to get back. I have had several clients share with me hard experiences with their church after someone found out they were in recovery or active addiction and felt judged and stigmatized even so much that they did not feel comfortable staying with that congregation. And 
lastly, this one, uh, authenticity and transparency from leadership. Uh, when attendees feel their leadership isn't shying away from being real about sin, about weakness, uh, they feel they can be real about who they are, which in turn uh, combats shame that they might feel. And so, again, that authenticity, uh, the transparency from leadership and the way in which we communicate that publicly and privately. Yeah, just a word about this. Uh, there is a difference. If, if, if you're sitting here as a church leader and you're sort of wrestling through what to share and what not to share, I do think there's a difference in appropriate privacy and secrecy. Uh, when we talk about keeping things secret, and I don't mean a surprise birthday party, right? But in general, when we talk about keeping things secret, we are keep, why are we keeping those things secretive? Well, there's, there's shame around them, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so we're... we're um, it, it's, we, we don't want our leadership motivated by shame. At the same time, it's okay for, for church leaders, just as it's okay for any of us, to have some appropriate level of privacy. Uh, and and, and that's, there's no easy way to determine or to differentiate between those two things. But uh, I do think it's a helpful litmus test if I'm thinking through, uh, is this something that I'm keeping private for a, for a legitimate reason of privacy, or is this something that I'm hiding in my life? simply because of shame. And keep in mind the almost and then some as far as what churches. When you look at these suggestions, yeah. all churches uh, can do this and can work towards this. Yeah, I was looking for a, a marker earlier to put those things on the board and, and I couldn't. But, um, yeah, certainly this is something that, uh, that we hope that all churches can, can do. I'm going to move to the second category which is uh, competent. Uh, you know, what are we doing here? We're at a lectureship. We're at a conference. We're engaging in continuing education. We're, we're keeping our minds fresh. We're learning uh, new tools and new skills that we can take back uh, and use for the, for the good of the kingdom. And uh, whether we're talking about church staff, whether we're talking about lay leadership in the church, uh, continuing education on issues of mental health, certainly can can be helpful um you've got a resource there jason i'm gonna i don't know if y'all can read this red pen or not but the this came from www.hope the number four mentalhealth.com mentalhealth.com um, from the saddleback church of course here in the la area uh, they have a wonderful free online resource you print this out uh, and it would be it would be wonderful to have available uh, whether if you've got of course if your church has an information center things like that very trusted very well uh, presented uh, resource just one of many but finding something to this um, I think caliber that's free uh, for you to, that would be something that would be good to have something else that, that I suggest is that you maintain a list of local resources for referral. I know this is something that Pegram does. Uh, so every once in a while Jason will call me uh, and say, do you know anybody in the area that does this? And so you, you're sort of constantly building and updating a, a list. And in the almost or some categories, this is something I think all churches can do. In fact, we were presenting similar material uh, at, a, at a lectureship this summer. And uh, 
afterward was having a conversation with a couple from a very, very small congregation on the East Coast. And uh, uh, they, they said, this is something we can do. We can go back and we can do this right now. Find out who the resources are. Uh, maybe may even make a personal contact with those folks if, if possible. Uh, a third issue with competence. Easy, right? Know your boundaries. <laughs> this is a very challenging thing for those of us that are in helping professions or, or lay helpers. A uh, couple of, uh, of good thoughts from our, our network of therapists here. Uh, I believe overall there's a need for clear boundaries and respect for what each side brings to the table. Church leaders need to understand that receiving counseling is a professional service, like attending a physician's appointment. So pulling uh, the person aside or calling the therapist to inquire about how things are going doesn't respect the client's confidentiality. Now I will say, unless the client wants those conversations happening, and a release of information could allow that. But uh, she continues, on the other hand, therapists and counselors alike need to respect that church leaders carry a burden of being accountable for their congregation, and they just want to know how to best help their struggling church members. If both sides can see that they're on the same team to help the the client and agree their roles look differently but ultimately help the client achieve improvement, then mental health services and church support can coexist with fewer misunderstandings. And, and one other comment we received in this category, science and religion do not have to be in conflict with one another. The intersection of the two is where profound spiritual experiences can happen. Another suggestion, again, a, a challenging one. Be aware of ministry burnout and compassion fatigue. A couple of years ago, Jason and I presented a class here at Pepperdine on self-care. Um, we don't expect anyone to know who we are. So, so we know that when we put a class on the schedule, except for John Micah here from yeah. Nashville, it's not the name that's bringing folks in, right? They're only going to come to a class if they recognize that there's a felt need for what's in the title. Uh, we could not get everyone in the room. Nothing to do with us. Those people have never heard us before and may or may not have been disappointed afterward. I don't know. But that to me was a testimony of this perceived need for self-care. Uh, among our uh, among our congregants and our leadership, um, this is self care is not selfishness. These are the things we do to make us better for everyone else. And there's there's more certainly to, I could say about that, uh, but uh, that's that's something to prioritize in our churches. Compassionate community, um, you know, connecting members with struggles to those who have endured similar struggles. In almost 24 years of ministry there at Pegram, this is still probably what excites me the most. Mm. Uh, I'm not preaching this Sunday, uh, but if I were, I mean, I would be thinking about it and excited. That's what Rick Ashley said yesterday when somebody said, what's your favorite sermon? He said, the next one. <laughs> I thought that's great, you know. Uh, and that's, I do have that excitement, but I get most excited about being able to know people's story and being able to connect the people together course with their permission uh, it's so exciting and it's so biblical in its nature uh, 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that, so that, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We have such wonderful resource in each other yeah. uh, that we don't tap into enough. And so intentionally, purposefully seeking to do that uh, is such a powerful thing. And along with the theme for the lectures this year, it allows the spirit to really uh, run free in these situations and be able to, uh, to help connect people in that way. Um, also with that, uh, congregation-sponsored support groups, I mean, something a little bit more structured and organized, um, things such as the Grief Share Program, Divorce Care, there's so many wonderful resources that are out there. And here's what's interesting about that. Sometimes when we offer these, and uh, either initially the response is strong and then it may weaken a little over time or something like that, and sometimes the facilitators themselves can become a little discouraged knowing that there's such great need, but maybe not seeing that response. Um, but finding that people, especially in regards to grief and, and type things, uh, they respond in their own way, in their own timing and all that. Here's what we found though. Even for people who will never attend that particular offering that you, that you are extending, they know and they remember that you did offer that. And so when they do experience, or when they are ready, or when they have a loved one who's experiencing and they're seeking that help, they come find you. doesn't mean it has to be during a structured time that you're offering the program. They remember you being a, a, a body of Christ or being a spiritual community that, that was trying and seeking to meet that need. And so you can't, even, you can't begin to you underestimate how powerful, uh, overestimate how powerful that can be. Also kind of what we call grassroots, listening to suggestions of members who have a passion. Um, and this can be tricky in churches because, you know, we're talking about the different size and congregational size and the structure of your leadership, about how ministry ideas are treated or, or um, uh, suggestions. Uh, and sometimes it can get caught up in red tape, that type stuff. Um, what you really want to do is facilitate an atmosphere that says when someone has kind of a passion for compassion, in this way, especially in regards to, to areas that, that support um, uh, mental health, to be able to, to give it a try, to, to maybe what a lot of times what we do is when someone brings an idea, you know, we, we try our best to never say no. It may be to try to get the idea organized and put with it maybe a trial period. Let's give it a trial period of six months or a year and then reevaluate uh, so that you don't start something and watch it take off and then, you know, flop, but you'd be able to have a little bit of, of uh, evaluation period to that. But it really encourages people to follow your passion, and we find that a lot. I mean, that some of the best ministries that continue today were started with someone's idea and someone's passion that others were able to join into, especially in regards to those that might benefit mental health. Reconsider our categories. Um, I think Dave has a, a, a comment here along with this, but we do, in seeking to make sure no one gets left out, Sometimes if we try to categorize our congregation too much, we can't isolate others. Yeah, I mean, look, it's the, it, it, no one, I, I think, is trying to do anything hurtful here. It's, it's the easiest way to, to uh, organize things, right? And say, okay, this class is based on this life stage, and this class is based on this life stage, or this marital status. Uh, it, it has some uh, efficiency to it. Uh, but uh, here's... 
here's uh, one of our therapists uh, speaking to this. Many of my single clients feel they don't have a place in church because so much of the focus is on marriage and children. And I think what, what she means here is uh, the class I'm supposed to go to or the life group I'm supposed to be a part of, the opportunities for ministry are categorized in many of the same ways that the rest of the world is categorized. Uh, and we're missing opportunity for, for more intergenerational uh, type of, of ministry. Yes, so encouraging each category and each group to also look to the others, you know, yeah. for involvement and, and inclusion. Uh, budgeting to assist members in need of counseling services, as Dave shared earlier about the stigma, has been somewhat removed. And so with that then becomes the challenge for many people and the excuse, well, we can't afford it and that type thing. And so churches are more and more uh, being able to, to budget and intentionally uh, make uh, that a possibility for individuals for counseling services. I know for, for our church, uh, right after the recession in 08, 09 or so, we created a household of faith fund. And it was specifically for benevolent needs within our church, within our church, you know, not just our community, but this was specifically for our church. And so at the time, that was for house payments, uh, you know, utility bills and that type of things. I'll tell you that today, and, and almost 10 years later, I think the primary, I haven't broken it down recently, but I know it has certainly increased the primary use, or one of the primary uses for that fund for us is for counseling services uh, for our members and that they know that that's uh, available. And so that's been a powerful testimony, I think, to the increase of the need, but also the openness that others have to receiving counseling. With that, uh, when it goes back into the almost or, or some churches, church counseling centers. Many of us have church buildings that sit empty many days of the week that can be used and would like to be used by qualified counselors who are looking for space in which to be able uh, to see clients. And uh, uh, we, we aren't a large uh, church, uh, but we have a, a nice, our, our building in, in the town, we sought to build a community center that we could use as a church because our church didn't need another church building. It needed a community center. And so we built the, the gymnasium and that type thing, and, and, and it gets used from every, every type of community group and that type of thing. But on Tuesdays and now also on Thursday nights, uh, we have a counseling room and a counseling center there uh, where clients are seen. Uh, one of the counselors is a, a member of our church. The other is not. Uh, it's a lady that's just, uh, that just began her work uh, with our church. And so uh, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, for people to make that connection and have that opportunity, whether it's within your church or your community, to have that availability. If, what's, what's your membership right If I looked you up in Where the Saints Meet, or whatever that <laughs> book is called now, yeah. what's the number that would be there? About 250. Yeah. 250. So we're, we're not talking about yeah. a saddleback. No, right? no, no. We're not even, no. even in that's our saddleback small group. Yes, that's a, that's a saddleback small group, right? Uh, and, and yet there's so much that, that, that you're able to do. I just want to make a brief comment about the counseling centers. If this would be a whole nother class, my email is, is on that handout. And if this is something you want more information about, you can email me. There are many models for how to structure something like this. Uh, you, you know, there's uh, models where the therapist is an employee of the church. There, there are models where the the therapist is essentially has a business arrangement with the church in exchange for the space and maybe some administrative assistance. Uh, there are church assistance programs where you're contracting with an existing center. 
there, there are a number of, of models. I, I do want to say, though, I, I would be, I would regret if I didn't say this. Don't just dismiss this as a possibility because you assume that the insurance is cost prohibitive. I, I know that church leadership as a group is typically risk averse, and I actually appreciate that. I, Averse. They don't want to take on risk. They 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 are uh, they are concerned about risk, and as they should be, you know, we, we don't want our leadership, uh, you know, putting the church at, at risk. Certainly, uh, but I, I think if they if they look at the information, they might find that this is not as risky as it, it might appear to be. Um, I have a small private practice. Uh, just see a very few clients in addition to the, the academic work that I do. Um, I have a $5 million policy. It costs me $140 a year. Uh, this is, if, if there are assumptions that, uh, that are based on medical malpractice insurance, okay, this is not that. Uh, this, this profession, it doesn't cost near as much to insure as a lot of other professions in, in the in the health uh, healthcare field. So, um, if uh, if you if a church a congregation cannot do their own uh, partnerships, this is the clinic that our students work out of the Lipscomb Family Therapy Center, um, and you can see here that we partner with a number of organizations, including some churches, Otter Creek, Ethos. Uh, Cross Point Church in Nashville, which is a large community church, um, uh, the Well Church. Uh, we have arrangements with these congregations where their membership can come for, for a reduced fee. So there are options, and again, I'm happy to go into more specifics uh, at another time. Uh, this, uh, this final category, collaboration, just a few things to put here. Uh, we've already talked about the fact that our buildings often are sitting empty. Um, one of our therapists who works in the recovery world, and uh, again, this is a therapist who's not a believer but sees the value uh, in church. If the church is not holding any community NA and AA meetings, I would suggest they do so. They could also have pamphlets of all the resources for transitional houses and recovery programs in their area. There are, how can we use our space uh, on those days during the week that we're not meeting in it? Cooperate with other congregations. Again, if, if a lot of what you're hearing today you think is a, is just, it might apply to some congregations but not yours, uh, perhaps there's an opportunity to join with other congregations. Uh, I my next door neighbor is a youth minister in a local Methodist church in South Nashville. And this was just an over-the-fence conversation in the backyard one day. Uh, in the Brentwood community, within a span of a few months, a couple of high school students uh, separately took their own lives, unfortunately. And uh, it was a very difficult thing. And he had been talking to some of his other friends in youth ministry, what can we do? We want to do something, but we don't want to uh, 
we, we want to do it in a competent way. We, we, we want to do something that will actually meet needs. And he was talking to me about that over the fence. And I said, I've got a colleague at Lipscomb, the assistant director in the counseling center. She has a grant for suicide prevention. And what if we could connect her with you and your network of, of youth ministers there in the Brentwood area? And an event came together, something that could not have probably been pulled off by any one congregation. Uh, but because of that collaborative spirit, it uh, turned out to be a really good thing. Uh, you can speaker series, uh, Q&A panels, uh, bring in experts from within your congregation or within the community. Uh, churches typically do well with good to great type events, like marriage enrichment. So if you've got a good marriage, you can come to this and, and make it a little bit better. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a little harder when we think about events that might address uh, more, more difficult situations. But I, I will give you, a, I'll give you an example of that in just a minute. This is one of my students, current students. And she said, if you invite people to learn about issues that they have not experienced, they will be more open to offer support and illness will be less stigmatized. Uh, this would also help those who are experiencing these issues. So in other words, we're putting on a program. It's not, uh, it's not just for people who are experiencing it. It's for people that want to learn more about it and support those who are. Uh, an example, this is a, a graduate of our program. She's uh, a therapist on staff with a large Catholic um, uh, parish in, uh, in Williamson County. I don't know if you remember the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why that came out about a year ago. Um, I supervise a couple of um, therapists who work at a clinic that only works with adolescents. Uh, they told me that when that series came out, within a week of that series landing on Netflix, they hospitalized five girls. Um, now, that's a problem, but it's also an opportunity to engage people in conversation. And uh, Colleen here, one, one of our graduates, uh, she put on this workshop uh, through her parish uh, instead of 13 reasons why, 13 reasons to hope. Uh, education and discussion of suicidal ideation and mental health issues. Uh, just a great example of the kind of thing that a church can do. Uh, one, one last uh, idea is, the, is hosting a resource fair uh, for mental health topics where you can invite agencies from around your community to come. And uh, one last last, it's an old, it's an old teacher trick, right? Uh, support your local agencies. Um, we've talked a little bit about budgeting and obviously you want a line item in your budget for meeting your congregants needs your memberships needs uh, but but also consider uh, in the budgeting process each year providing support uh, to mental health resources in the area especially those that that help low-income clients yes yeah I was just about to say we I think we have some time for questions okay what are you defining as mental health I've been sitting here kind of at a loss okay um, I, I would define, well, so there's a couple of ways to think about this, right? Um, there is the, 
the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Health Disorders, which um, uh, some people would point to that and say, does someone meet the criteria for a diagnosis within this book? Um, I would say that's largely an economic document. It's for therapists to, to bill insurance. It gives you a code and a, and a way to explain the work that you do. I would not limit it simply to diagnoses. I think there are many people who are struggling uh, who might not meet the specific criteria for a personality disorder or bipolar or depression or generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, so I would broaden that to any, anything that is um, uh, an obstacle to functioning in, in what the person considers a healthy or desirable way. Discussion. Is autism yeah. a mental disorder? Uh, it is a diagnosis in, in the DSM, certainly. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a spectrum. It's laid out on a spectrum. Right, right. Yes. And uh, so, so, yes, it would qualify. On the spectrum qualifies? Yeah. And the, uh, that's a whole other issue, which would be another great class. The, uh, the uh, federal regulations, uh, the, the Disabilities Act, uh, for a school, for example, would include that as something that would warrant uh, special accommodations. And, that, and when I say that's another conversation for our churches, how do our churches become more inclusive mm -hmm. in the same way that schools yeah. need to be more inclusive? So you're not limiting it to adults? I am no. I, I would not limit this conversation to adults. Certainly not. Many children cannot meet the criteria for some of those uh, diagnoses because they are limited based on age, mm -hmm. but they're still, they're still struggling with their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We have a health ministry at our church. Great. And I'm faith community nurse mm -hmm. and so we did a survey of our congregation last fall and the top need that was identified in every age group was either around mental health or depression or right. loneliness and in discussing this with our public health district they find that that's the situation in our community mm -hmm. and so I some of the ideas that you have given about yes. ways to address um, classes or referrals or yeah. bringing some resources together has yeah. been very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I just wrote survey your congregation as a future suggestion to add yeah. to the presentation. Oh, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's, a good that's, idea. that's great. And, and I point back to your question too. Uh, this resource guide, the very first part of it, answers the questions, what is mental health, what is mental illness, okay. triggering events, possible sign. It, again, it's not going to be as clinical as what Dave's going to be able to share. Sometimes I have to get him to dumb things down for me a little bit, but uh, <laughs> stop boring him. He dumbs it down for you. Right, right, right. But it, it, it kind of gives you that as an overview. Again, it's a free resource that's great to have, you know, uh, and again, it may just help begin some of those conversations, but I think it's a great resource to so have. Hand yeah. over here. Yeah, um, I was just curious if you've included um, whether it's part of the same conversation of mental health within the church or if it's a separate ministry towards working with homeless um, and what that looks like well, integrated within the church. If it was a Venn diagram, <laughs> it would overlap a lot, right? I mean, I, I think the way I would say that is certainly there are many people who struggle with mental health issues who are not homeless. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of homeless people are struggling with mental health yeah, issues. Yeah. And, and so if you had a congregation that already has a heart for the homeless or if that's something that's being developed to best serve them, mm -hmm. I think 
developing a mental health element to that uh, would would really be important. Uh, in, in working, one suggestion about working with an agency like with our church, we participate in the Room in the End program. John Mike might be familiar with it too. That it's in the Nashville area. Uh, it's how many churches? I mean, it's uh, well over 150 yeah. churches. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, from the months of November through March that provide housing. Uh, but but it goes through that that ministry and, and that organization, which has an incredible filter, and they have all these resources available. So we're providing basically the services that we can efficiently do: housing, feeding them, you know, providing some physical needs, that type of thing. Uh, but also supporting uh, that organization which has then much more yes. adequate resource yes. for mental health treatment that type of thing so what's the name of the program the housing uh room in the end room, room in the end yeah you should be able to a google search i'm not sure that's probably the website father charles yeah. strobel mm -hmm. is the is the name that is associated with that it's amazing when you begin to broaden this conversation though even when you're trying to identify the difference between a mental health and mental yeah. illness um just being aware you know, of, of, I don't want the word demographic an okay word sure. to use within yeah. our congregations. Yeah. Um, but take the death in our church. Yes. Who I'm not, who I would never say they're mentally ill or that's, that's a, it's a, there's a, there's a medical issue there, right? But one of the most um, needed therapeutic situations because they haven't, they can't speak to anybody. Yes. So even raising awareness for, People like that that you wouldn't even think who are suffering with conditions that who can't who cannot see or even interact with a normal therapist and the need for therapists who are who have the abilities mm -hmm. to sign uh, is yeah. so yes. devastating in our area. We've got I mean it's it's, uh, it's wild once you begin once you begin opening your awareness up to yes. who this conversation expands to it's 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 wild. You're basically talking about making the gospel accessible to as many people oh. as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, John. Um, so I, a few years ago, worked at a church um, and had quite a few interactions with individuals who their theology didn't accommodate for mm. oh, the sure. idea of mental health sure. as sure. a concept. Mm. Like that, that was outside of what they believed, I guess. And I'm a social worker, so I had a little heart attack every time. Um, <laughs> But I just, I guess I could use some guidance as to like how to navigate that conversation. That's a hard question. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect that people who are still able to hold on to that belief have not yet personally experienced or had anyone close to them personally experience it. Last that changes, night, that tends to change theology. Last night in the keynote, <laughs> in the keynote last night, Josh talked about his wife saying, "Don't ever make reconciliation sound so easy again." Um, I, I uh, you know, I, I think that that comes from a place from of someone who either has struggled to reconcile or loves someone who has. So, uh, you know, one thing that I think is helpful is to try to get that conversation to a place of uh, experience. Mm -hmm. um, reflecting back, and you've got these skills as a social worker, but it, you know, this is, so here's, this is what I'm hearing you say. Let me reflect this back to you um, and, do, and then try to go to a place where, do, uh, do you know anyone 
Have you had an experience with anyone? Have you had a personal experience where that didn't hold up to actually be true? Maybe that's one way to engage that. <coughs> it's very difficult to change someone's dogmatic belief, right. though, at the end of the day. We probably need to cut rack this up because we're up against lunch, I think. But oh yeah, there's we, a, we can't compete with lunch. <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, there's a church sign uh, that says, "Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help." Uh, and, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's some of the mixed message we've probably sent uh, in our churches and in our approaches. And so it's seeking to be a little bit more, uh, um, I guess, practical in the approach. Hebrews chapter four. Now that we know what we have. Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been, been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. And so that just reminds us... Um, as believers, the message we want to reinforce, to resonate with those who uh, struggle and are connected to those who struggle with mental health issues, uh, you are not forgotten, you are not alone, and let the church help. And so we want to equip and empower our churches in a more powerful way to do that. So we appreciate you being here today because that's what helps make it happen uh, everywhere. Well, no, we'll, we'll hang out for a few minutes. Thank you so much for being here. And then for the comments and questions, thank you.